I saw it on the extreme screen, Shannon. So I was like, I had my feet up, um, and I, I, you know, I'd snuck some beer into the cinema. Ah, oh, so did I. <laughs> well, that's how you do it, folks. Yeah. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pleasure of the Text podcast. We're your hosts, Shannon Garrett. Hello, Shannon. We're doing something a bit different today. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, we are. You know, I think we said we were going to uh, do another writing session, specifically uh, street sketches. But as often happens with writers, we have decided to put that to one side and work on something else uh, this time around. And as with writers, I've completely gone blank as to what that is. What is, what are we doing today? Today we are, well, actually this came about because we both recently saw the horror movie Smile and she told me about it because you ended up going with your friend, how you were happy with about 65% of the film and the remaining 35% left a lot to be desired. And so then I had to quickly go see this film and we're going to talk about that film. And then you recommended another horror movie to me, Caveat. And we're going to also talk about Caveat and its ending. Yes. And, and Caveat is available, uh, on Shudder, uh, for viewers in Australia, but possibly elsewhere as well. I didn't actually look into that and, uh, we'll soon be out on Blu-ray. I believe I'm reading that somewhere. That's an excellent film. So yeah, we'll discuss them both, uh, but we're not going to do a film review because we're not a, a film podcast. Uh, we're going to talk about the film as a piece of writing, both films as, as pieces of writing. Uh, it's convenient that in both cases, the writer and director are one and the same. And obviously we haven't read the screenplays for either film. So we're not reviewing the screenplays as such. We're more doing uh, a sort of a pseudo review and an analysis of the presentation of those written texts as films. So that's a bit of a winding path, isn't it? Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you took over and explained that for everyone. There we are. Yep. Now we're all just a lot clearer. Um, so I guess the first thing. I guess we'll start with um, smile. Do you have a synopsis handy so we can, oh, before we uh, do the synopsis, should just do a spoiler alert. Oh, yes. Um, there will absolutely positively be spoilers in this discussion because we'll be talking about the stories and quite a bit about the ending of one of them. So, um, yes, expect lots of spoilers if you haven't seen the films yet, you know, go and watch them now and then, uh, you know run back here five minutes later once you've watched them both and have a listen to our podcast. Did you just say run back here five minutes later after you've seen the movies? Yeah, right. You know, just, <laughs> just knock them off. Boom, Put it on time uh, and speed. Yeah, yeah, you get it. Just watch the trailers. I don't know. And then come back here and then, yeah, take all the time you like listening to this podcast. Mm -hmm. Um. <laughs> Yeah, well, the trailer is great. So that's kind of what uh, got us really interested to go see this film to begin with. And if you hadn't guessed by the title, Smile, it takes a very interesting uh, take on 
the smile. So kind of turning that upside down on its head. So Smile was written and directed by Parker Stint and the synopsis for Smile. So Rose, our main character, first learns about the smiling monster that takes over her life when a distraught young woman named Laura Weaver, played by Caitlin Stacey, is brought to Rose's hospital in a state of near hysteria. Laura explains that she's been seeing an entity no one else can see. A creature with a horrible smile that sometimes appears to her in the guise of other people she knows, alive or dead. Then Laura collapses, screaming, clearly seeing something over her shoulder that Rose can't see. As Rose calls for help, Laura stands up calmly smiling and slits her own throat. From that moment on, Rose keeps seeing Laura, in public and in private, smiling at her. She has visions and nightmares that feature other people she knows smiling and screaming at her. Rose tells other people about the entity, including her fiancé Trevor, played by Jesse Usher, and her sister Holly, played by Gillian Victor, but they believe she's having delusions brought on by the stress and trauma of Laura's death. Eventually, Rose and her ex, a policeman named Joel, played by Kyle Gallner, discover a chain of similarly grotesque suicide stretching back into the past. The pan suggests that the entity haunts someone until they are deeply traumatized and then forces them to kill themselves in front of a witness who is traumatized by the death. Then the entity starts over with its new victim. Well, that's about the size of it, isn't it? Did you mention, um, is it Sosie Bacon? That is, Sosie Bacon is the actress of Rose. No, I did not mention yeah. that. But yeah, good call. Our star. Yeah, and she was fantastic. Um, I've never heard an actor who has such a real quiver in her voice, and that happened throughout the whole film, and it was very believable. Yes, before we, before we get into the meat and potatoes of what we're going to talk about, um, I would definitely say that you know, this is a very well executed film, beautifully shot with uh, a terrific cast who do an amazing job, very well directed. No complaints really at all with any of that. Big props. Very good. And very enjoyable. I, I really enjoyed. I saw it on the extreme screen, Shannon. So I was like, I had my feet up um, and I, I, you know, I'd snuck some beer into the cinema. Ah, oh, so did I. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how you do it, folks. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, it was great. You know, you have so much room. Uh, I, I could have had a little nap, except I was, uh, I was quite into it. And apparently for the um, promotion for the film, uh, the uh, studio, I think, paid actors to go stand in public places, uh, oh, God. smiling in a sinister way. Um, so yeah, I could see that that would be very successful. And certainly at the end of the film, um, uh, this, this lady was walking up the steps and we, she, we caught each other's eye and she just looked at me and gave me the most sinister smile as she walked past. And I, I just, I want to give her a shout out because that made my evening. That was wonderful. Well, do you want to do an enactment of the smile for our YouTube, um, watchers? We can just do it for three seconds. Well, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not a performing monkey, but you never know uh, when you're talking. I, I might crack one on. You, you just never know. Yeah. Um, the actress who actually uh, 
dies at the beginning and indeed um, dies in the trailer, so I don't feel like we're giving too much away there, is Caitlin Stacy. Um, and honestly, her ability to smile like a mad woman is, is the hook on which this film is hung. So I think she deserves major props and hopefully yeah. this is the, you know, the spark that will light up her career. Mm. Uh, cause I think, yeah, I think she does a great job. I, I, I think at the start of the film, we think this smile is what is going to be the centerpiece of this entity, entity traveling like a contagion from one body to the next. But I think what let it down was this wasn't the case. We eventually find out through the progression of the film that um, uh, this entity can travel through person to person by um, trauma. So uh, all these people who end up dying uh, kill themselves in front of another person and then that entity through that traumatic experience travels on to its next victim. And yeah, like I said, that was kind of disappointing because I was really interested to see how this defamiliarization of the concept of the smile would play out in a horror format because um, I think smiles are terrifying when they're not real. And throughout the film, there's like fantastic visuals of where they're flipping the road upside down with a car. Um, they're doing all these flip screenplay, if you will, but it, I don't think it eventuated to uh, what it could have done. Um, so you mentioned defamiliarization, and this again is something that uh, you and I have talked about a little bit. Um, it's probably about time we at least defined what it was. Uh, so I'm going to just read some notes here. Um, so defamiliarization is a term coined by the Russian formalist critic Viktor Sklowski. Um, who died in 1984, and he was born in 1893. It derives from the Russian term ostranini, which means to make strange. So defamiliarization is taking something that's familiar, effectively, and making it strange. Um, and you could argue that all art is a process of defamiliarization at its, at its core. So, you know, when you think about what stands out to you in any, in any piece of art, what makes it, makes it distinct, it's the oddities that do it. The bits, I mean, that literally stand out. They're not even, they're not flat. They don't blend into the background. So a smile can be a fairly innocuous thing, but in the film smile, it has been defamiliarized. It has become extremely sinister. Um, and not because, you know, there have been plenty of films where um, the villain smiles in an evil way, but there are no villains in this film in, in a strict sense. None of the characters who smile in a sinister way are villains. It's the smile itself that is, is sinister, uh, which is a wonderful idea. You, you've got to hats off, I think, as conceptually the film is terrific. And that's why the trailer is so powerful because it presents that conception. It's all concept. And certainly when I saw the trailer, my mind was blown and I knew I had to rush to my nearest extreme screening with some beer and check it out. And so it was. Yeah. Um, but you know, defamiliarization is, is a really important, 
uh, tool in the making of art. And once you start using it, it's not the best idea to just abandon it. And I think that's, that's your position. Am I right, Shannon, in, in terms of smile, that the defamiliarization is abandoned? Yes, I would say that because to reiterate, you've got this amazing defamiliarization of a smile, which is, it's incredibly sinister. You, you're already on edge when, um, Caitlin Stacey is about, is, has this awful grin on her face and is about to slit her throat. You, you know, that's enough to terrify me because it's so abnormal. If you're watching horror movies, you're used to people and blood and death and knives across throats. That was less terrifying than her smile in that moment. But as the film progresses, it moves further and further away from that um, starting point. Yeah, it abandons what I assume the trailer is about. But yeah, I assume, and you know, may be proven to be wrong, that Laura hasn't slept, uh, hangs its hat on that moment of a character smiling. Um, yeah, and I, I suppose we haven't talked about really Laura hasn't slept yet. So this was a short film also written and directed by Parker Finn and it was going to be shown at a film festival uh, back in 2020, but this was when COVID, um, another contagion was happening in the world. So a very brief synopsis on that is, um, and it also stars uh, Caitlin Stacy. And so the synopsis is desperate to rid herself of a recurring nightmare. A young woman seeks the help of her therapist. And that's basically it. So here Parker Finn is playing with, um, would you say schizophrenia? So like, you know, different, oh gosh, stuff like perceptions and reality. It's to the person who's experiencing them. They're real. And for people who are listening on the uh, podcast, um, Gareth just did one of his uh, terrifying smiles. And we're going to be doing that throughout this YouTube uh, video. If you want to jump over there and just get your horror fix for the, for the day. <laughs> and if you are listening to this on a, on a listening platform, I, I would really recommend to you, you pick someone around you, preferably not a child, pick someone <laughs> around you and, and give them your most sinister smile. It, it could make their day. I mean, it might not, but in any case, I think one of the issues with the film, um, it's a lesser issue, but I think it's worth talking about before we get onto the whole co concept of the defamiliarized smile is as well as she played the part, uh, Sosie Parker, is that right? Sosie Parker. Saucy Bacon. Saucy Bacon. Ah, you know what? I think it's this whole vegetarianism thing I'm doing. I just can't even bear to think of bacon. Um, okay, Miss Susie or Saucy. Saucy Bacon. Sounds like sausage. Oh my God, sausage bacon. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. Okay. Um, Saucy Bacon uh, is is given a bit of a, a tough task because she's playing a, a, a therapist who deals with people who suffer from psychosis and she has to make us believe that this psychiatrist psychologist um doesn't in any way sort of clinically approach her own hallucinations and i find that 
really problematic. I found it problematic throughout the whole film. It was the one thing, no matter how good an actor you are, I think if you're trying to play something that just doesn't make sense, it's really difficult to sell it. I think she almost got there too, which is a real tribute to her skill. But for me, um, that was an issue. And there's a, there's a fascinating, uh, you can whip over to Wikipedia. I'm sure we'll chuck this on our show links. The, uh, Tanganyika laughter epidemic of 1962. Uh, I'll just give you the, as I say, the, the Wikipedia summary. The Tanganyika laughter epidemic of 1962 was an outbreak of mass hysteria or mass psychogenic illness rumored to have occurred in or near the village of Kashasha on the western coast of Lake Victoria in Tanganyika, which once united with Zanzibar became the modern name of Tanzania near the border of Uganda. The laughter epidemic began on January the 31st at a mission-run boarding school for girls in Kashasha. It started with three girls and spread throughout school, affecting 95 of the 159 pupils aged 12 to 18. Symptoms lasted from a few hours to 16 days. The teaching staff were unaffected and reported that students were unable to concentrate on their lessons. The school closed on March 18. This epidemic spread to Nishamba, a village where several of the girls lived. In April and May, 217 mostly young villagers had laughing attacks. The Kashasha school reopened on May 21st and reclosed at the end of June. Earlier that month, the laughing epidemic spread to Miramashenyi Girls Middle School, New Bukoka, affecting 48 girls. The Kashasha school was sued for allowing the children and their parents to transmit it to the surrounding area. Other schools, Kashasha itself, wow. And another village were affected to some degree. The phenomenon died off 18 months after it started. The laughter reports were widely accompanied by descriptions of pain, fainting, respiratory problems, rashes, and crying. In all, 14 schools were shut down and 1,000 people were affected. So, yeah, wow. Um, <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that crazy? Uh, so, you know, I knew about this before I saw the film. This wasn't sort of something I um, I just kind of stumbled over doing research for this podcast. And I suppose the question that came to me was these sorts of uh, mass hysterical effects, um, group delusions. I don't understand why the main character in Smile, with all her clinical training, didn't rationalize her psychoses or her psychosis uh, more than she does. She very quickly accepts that what she is seeing, uh, and I think the justification is it's too real, you know, not to be real. Uh, anyone who's ever had an hallucination will tell you that they do seem real. That's kind of the point. Uh, so yeah, from my point of view, that's an issue. I don't understand why she was so easy to convince. Yeah, especially because when she is dealing with um, Stacey, so Laura coming into her practice, the first thing she says over and over again to Laura is, what you're seeing isn't real. I know it feels really real to you, but it's not real. 
And then, like you said, she doesn't apply that to her own perspective of or reality, if you will. Um, and then I do have an article, which I mean, maybe answers the question of why it was done that way. So Finn makes a comment here. Uh, this article is from Polygon. The movie all along teaches you how to watch it and teaching that you can't trust Rose's perception, Finn says. It's in the DNA of the movie to mess with the viewer a little. So I wanted to really pay that off with how the movie ends, how that might feel like an ending, might not be an ending, and I really leaned into that. So, I mean, I understand that we're not supposed to trust Rose's perception, but she trusts her own perception way too much. Yeah, cool. Rose and Joel find one person who broke the chain and survived by grotesquely murdering someone else in front of a witness and passing the entity onto that witness. That sets up a few likely possibilities for the end. One, Rose can either sacrifice someone else to survive, like Naomi Watts' character Rachel does with a similar passed-on curse in the ring. Two, she can fail to break the curse and the entity can win, meaning Rose dies in front of someone else who takes on the trauma. Or three, she can find another way to confront and fight the creature. In the end, Smile has all three of those endings. So I think, I think this, is, this is sort of what occurs. Um, you have this setup with the smile representing this contagion. Um, and then I think the mechanics of films comes into play as sort of an extra textual concern. Oh, the audience has seen other films, so we need to be different. And so therefore we need to play out various scenarios and find a way to de defamiliarize those, uh, which I think is a shame because the setup is very unique and it's, it's really the power of the film, the, the smile. So I think we have three endings. We don't actually need to, to really spoil those endings. We can just say that she manages to do all three. And yeah, for me, the ending was, was pretty disappointing. Yeah. And I think I would have loved to have seen them stick to their guns in a sense and work with the concept of the defamiliarized smile. Would you agree with that? Yeah. The horror of this film is to do with the smile. So in one of the potential endings that Rose um, experiences is we then kind of have a lanky monster into the scene. And that is, again, less terrifying for me as a viewer than if they had continued with this whole smile concept. I think we talked about it a bit before where you said, let's say um, either Rose or Joel died in the end and uh, they're in the church, they're going through the um, sermon uh, of the dead person. And, you know, he looks up into the crowd or she looks into the crowd and everyone is smiling, kind of like what you brought up with the mass psychosis in um, Rwanda. Tanzania. Tanzania. The, yeah. the mass psychosis is Tanzania. See, that would be like way more terrifying than this, um, even though there is one point where the monster tears off its skin and has lots of rows of teeth. But again, that's not the horror aspect to me within this film. No. And I mean, you know, there's only so many rows of teeth you can have, aren't there? There's a, 
Unless you're a shark. Show. Well, yeah, they do have a few. Uh, so do um, oh, there's a particular kind of eel that's just all teeth. Um, yeah, I, I think that the smile should have continued to be defamiliarized in various ways. There are all kinds of possible ways that could be done, I think. But I suppose, you know, they've, they've introduced the character of the mother, the, um, the, tra the past trauma for Rose. Mm. And I understand the film has had some criticism for turning trauma into entertainment, which is possibly an overstep really, because I think ultimately all horror films turn trauma into entertainment. Uh, well, it would be hard, wouldn't it, to have a horror film that doesn't do that? Okay, but let's remove the genre of horror. All movies do that, whether it's the trauma of finding your husband cheating on you with your best friend in a, a chick flick film. I mean, all these things that we engage in as entertainment is in a lot of ways using these experiences. Adam Sandler's savage murdering of comedy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's, it's all fairly traumatic, which is why we bring beer into the cinema. Uh, but I would have liked them to defamiliarize smiles more. And I think that, you know, when you start to think about the way uh, smiles work, I think there's potential there. I had an idea that I thought was quite interesting, potentially, where Rose comes to understand that in actual fact, she has a brain tumor. And I was thinking that it might be interesting if the contagion has a physical manifestation and it could be something like a brain tumor and so in the final scene of the film i thought what would be fascinating would be to have her lying on a surgical table and she's had her anesthetic uh, but she's still aware of things you know that's terrifying in and of itself um and she's staring up at the doctor and the doctor has one of those mirrors on his um ar around his head you know to to reflect light and provide a better look and her own face her own grimacing face in that mirror would be inverted turned upside down and would look like a sinister smile and i thought that would be quite a good ending um for the film uh, it's not as action-packed, I suppose, but I think it would be far more unsettling if you convinced the audience that in actual fact she was just ill and that everything had been a delusion. And then in that last moment when she's going under the knife, you see her own face or her own mouth twisted into a smile, an upside-down frown. Turn that frown upside down. Yeah. I definitely think that um, maintaining the central hook of the film, the smile, the defamiliarized smile, uh, is something that, that that's kind of the sacred part of this story and, and not, not something to be abandoned. Um, and I think you could, I mean, there, there's evidence of it being abandoned earlier on as well, besides the, the idea of suicide passing it on. There's also the scene where her 
psychiatrist played oh, yeah. by the wonderful uh, Robin Wiegert. Um, she somewhat attacks Rose. I have to say that in that scene, when she starts to smile, I was quite chilled and thrilled. And then when she gets up and starts walking towards Rose, all of that faded away because it became familiar. She was a, a bogey, a bogey woman. And, and so it was like, well, yeah, all right then. So for me, I, that was meant to be ratcheting up the tension. For me, it was a big pin in the side of a, of a balloon of anxiety. And then I was like, nah. <laughs> just going to drink some more beer, have some Skittles. I don't know. Well, okay. So let's go back to the um, psychologist that has entered into Rose's house. So talking about this kind of concept of mental illness, uh, depression, you know, some people still don't think, or it's highly stigmatized. People don't think it's actually a thing. A lot of time people say, oh, just smile, just be happy. Imagine the psychologist had this awful grin on her face. It's like, why don't you just smile, Rose? And leads in and the smile gets bigger and bigger. Like how terrifying would that be? So you're still playing with this like smile thing, which has a lot deeper message. Um, I mean, suicide has a deep message too, but it wasn't used in that way. In no, gosh, way. I love that idea. That's fantastic. And also the psychiatrist at that point is abandoning any pretense, like the clinical mask falls because a psychiatrist mm. hopefully wouldn't say, come on, just smile and walk it off. <laughs> so yeah, that in itself would be, would be tremendously, uh, frightening. And, and you could have the retreat rose retreats down down the stairs yeah i think a more interesting retreat would have been to have the camera uh close in on her face and have her lips almost as if this force was pushing a smile yeah. onto her face without them ever touching um, i think that would have been just ugh, really unsettling and yeah i, I, I can feel it in my stomach way. Yeah. 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 So, and then after watching Smile, you recommended another movie. But before we go into Caveat, what would you give Smile out of five? Yeah. So I think interestingly enough, I mean, I, I said we weren't reviewing the film, but the plot of a film is, is and, and its execution as a story is so important. So I would probably drop half a point, half a star for each of the three endings. I think that's how I sort of see it. And so I'd give it three and a half out of five. I'd say it was a definitely a 70% a film. I think at the beginning you said I, I was happy with about 65% of the film. I'll go you on better. And so I was happy with 70% of the film, <laughs> but the last 30%, which was literally the last 30%, did not work for me at all. Yeah. And I think um, Parker Finn with the three endings, you know, he tried to be quirky with it, but in a sense, me watching it and experiencing it really was, I woke up from a dream sequence. It didn't have that hit to home that I think he was hoping for, or at least it didn't work on my end. And I'm guessing yours as well with your 3.5. No, definitely not. I think as soon as you start thinking about your film as a film, like when you're the writer of it, mm -hmm. you start thinking in terms of the extra textual start thinking about what your audience is going to think. 
uh, you move outside of the writing and you move away from what is being written. And what was being written was this incredible idea about a defamiliarized smile and it gets lost. And what, and what would you give it out of five? Um, I would probably be a bit more harsher. So I would give it three out of five stars because to me, the things now that, I mean, there's been a week since I watched it, what I remember most was the introduction of the film, which is basically the trailer. That's probably the most scariest moment. Um, and she goes, Rose goes to her sister's house for the nephew's birthday party. And, you know, we see a beautiful cat who's been acting Whiskers uh, fantastically and Whiskers disappears. And, you know, she's trying to get him to come back and um, she gifts the present to her nephew. He opens it up and pulls out Mr. Dead Whiskers. And then she's like, I didn't do it, falls and smashes onto a glass table. That was another kind of uh, scene that I'm going to continue to remember. The rest oh, of it was a um, bit hit and miss. So I would probably say three stars. Yeah. I mean, the, the cat thing, she did do it. Right. In the logic of the film, she absolutely yeah. did do it, uh, which is something to consider when you see the rest of the film. And and if you follow the logic of the film, if you're the one person who survived was because he murdered a bunch of people in front of other people, well, in a traumatic way, you could say giving your nephew your dead cat, that's pretty traumatic. That would have passed on that curse, I think. And it kind of falls... That's an interesting okay. idea. And the, the other side of that is killing someone, I would presume, is relatively traumatic. You know, I haven't tried it. Uh, but, you know, the idea that you can just kill someone and you'll be fine, you know, they'll pop you in jail, but, you, you know, otherwise you'll be doing great, uh, doesn't really make any sense at all. I would have thought that would have been an extremely traumatic thing to do. Yeah. Uh, for someone who, you know, wasn't otherwise that way inclined. So yeah, there's a, there's a few holes to pick in it. Although I would recommend people go see the film. I think in terms of horror films, you know, they can be very hit and miss. And I think this hits more than it misses. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. So moving on to caveat, which is another, um, writer slash director film. So this one was directed and written by Damien McCarthy and it's a 2020 Irish film. So why did you recommend this to me in the first place? Oh, or should I uh, read the synopsis first? Oh, that's a good question. No, I read the synopsis. Okay. Yeah. I read the synopsis. Yeah, yeah. But put a pin in that question. All right. Okay. So when the slick and calculating Barrett played by Ben Kaplan offers Isaac played by Jonathan French, a five-day job babysitting Barrett's adult niece, Olga, played by Lila Sykes, who needs company at her isolated childhood home. Isaac, a drifter suffering from some kind of amnesia and the mental fog that goes with it, is confused. Barrett claims to be an old friend, but Isaac has no memory of him. Also, why is this supposed old friend offering him so much money to hang out with a woman clearly too old to need a babysitter. Isaac says, baffled, there's got to be more to it than that. Suddenly, the title card appears in jagged letters, caveat. When Barrett said the house was isolated, he failed to mention it was on an island in a lake out in the middle of nowhere. Isaac can't swim. 
Barrett brushes it off. There's a boat, isn't there? The young woman is nowhere to be seen at first. There's one more caveat, and it's worse than the first. Barrett informs Isaac that during his stay, he must wear a leather harness attached to a long chain. The key will be kept out of Isaac's reach. This will limit Isaac's movements in the house, thereby helping to calm Olga's rampaging paranoia. As Isaac explores his surroundings as much as he can in the harness, he tries to interpret the weirdness of everything he sees, hears, and experiences. When Olga first appears, she's holding a gigantic crossbow, and she's an intense presence, droning stories to Isaac about her parents, both of whom are gone. So that's a bit of a synopsis from Roger Ebert. Yes, rogerebert.com. Bless you, Roger Ebert. Um, gosh, yeah, I, I, I agree with all of that. And, and I would say when you mention the caveats, a listener who hadn't seen the film, hopefully there isn't one listening now, having not seen the film, um, might think, well, why would you agree to be chained up in a house on an island? But I think it's a real tribute to the writing that I thought to myself when I was listening to this, would I do it? And the answer was yes. Um, Olga is clearly extremely vulnerable. Isaac has nothing else going on. And there's just enough plausibility that you think, yeah, you know, it's not great, but it's hard to get a job in this economy and that girl really needs looking after. So, okay. Um, yeah. so yeah, I thought, I thought the film was fantastically well-written and I think the, uh, the acting was superb and yeah, the, the set design cinematography as a film, I recommended it to you, Shannon, because as a film, I think it's really one of the best horror films that has been produced in the last 20 years. I really do. I think, uh, yeah, I think, yeah. Uh, Damien McCarthy has a huge future, uh, as a filmmaker. Yeah. So you said it was, uh, in the top five of horror movies. Yeah, I do. I, I really do. I've watched a lot of horror movies. Um, and I don't find many things frighten me. I think it's why I'm drawn to horror movies, uh, because they're singular experiences for me. Like most of the time I watch them and think, yeah, yeah, you know, all right, that was fun. Uh, but every now and again, one will creep me out. It's pretty rare. Um, this one creeped me out and I was just, I was, I was loving that feeling of being creeped out. Yeah, it certainly was creepy. Very creepy film. Um, it's not a perfect film. And, and again, I think the issue, uh, is a writing issue. It was actually, you were very much the one who brought this to my attention. I, uh, originally kind of swept up in the whole thing and the feel of it would have given it five out of five. Um, I would probably redress that now and say it's four and a half because there is a flaw in the film that is just a flaw with no upside, um, which is, and, and I think, I, I don't know if it was your idea or you said something that made me think of it. I, I can't remember, but basically, uh, no, it was your idea. You, you said you found the father problematic. Yeah. So talking about it with you, I said, you know, it was absolutely terrifying. There was kind of three things, the rabbit with the drum that like drums kind of like a canary when it's 
in a mine and you know when doom's about to happen it starts clanging but then there's nothing around the second thing was picture that falls from the wall and is looking at him and then the face changes in the painting and the second thing was the mum what kind of made me kind of lose half uh well not lose interest i was still you know in the moment but it was incredible there was a part where it was a little bit confusing because i the dad dies because isaac's gone to kill him but then it just all kind of became quite convoluted and it was as if the dad or the uncle didn't need to be in the film you could have cut out one character and it would have made a lot more sense yeah i'd agree with that 100 percent. now now it's been pointed out to me um if i was going to do a a, an edit of that script i would have removed the uncle altogether which is not to say that i would have said to ben kaplan you know on your bike no role for you here i would have recast him as the father um because you could do that actually quite easily um basically the the disappearance of the mother is enough uh in terms of a mystery the father's suicide is not essential and the uncle tries to hire um, Isaac, our hero, to murder the father. Uh, it would have been just as easy for the father to hire Isaac to kill his wife, and then he doesn't. And, and that just simply removes this chunk of complication that does, just doesn't need to be there. I, I think the idea that he, uh, you know, that the, the father in the finished film dies of claustrophobia is, is, you know, it's a scary idea. It's a, it's a cool idea, but it's not an essential idea. Um, and the film sets up this idea that the, the mother and father have a, a, a fractured relationship and the mother has a, has a certain amount of contempt, even hatred for the father. So the ending of the film would make a lot more sense if her vengeance was directed at the father, not the uncle. I think, I think that just makes yeah. a lot more sense. Um, so I think that's what undermines the film a little bit. Um, I don't think it's, again, I don't think it's a death blow. I, I still think it's a, it's an excellent film and a film that I don't know if people will agree with this, but, um, MR James, uh, his ghost stories for Christmas, uh, the BBC adapted quite a number of M.R. James stories into uh, TV specials at Christmas, and one of them is called Lost Hearts. And the terrifying children in that production of Lost Hearts look exactly like the mother in Caveat. And if they weren't a, uh, a direct inspiration, I don't know what's happening because they, they really are her kids in a sense but um how would you have dealt with would you have removed the father um i mean potentially there didn't need to be a father it could have been the uncle wanting to do away with his sister for whatever reason i think the mother and father makes more sense it kind of closes and reduces the world of uh olga a lot more cleaner cleanly as opposed to them being a rivalry between the sister and a brother. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think the purpose of the dog was? Oh, I, um, I think that Isaac is the dog, obviously they're both on chains. Uh, to be honest with you, beyond that, 
And I mean, you know, there's this thing uh, that people will talk about as, you know, good things to do in writing to establish motivation. And one is be nice to a dog. I think it's, I think it's doing that um, to an extent. And I think that his apparent leaving with the dog is, is almost like giving Isaac something, you know, after all of this, he's walked away with a dog. I mean, there are easier ways to get yourself a dog. Uh, but I think that's basically he, he gets a dog. I think that's. And do you think, you know, saving the dog absolves him of essentially killing Olga because he's locked her in to the harness. We're assuming that she's not going to be able to get out. I didn't read it as he was going to leave her there forever. Okay. I assumed he was probably going to go to the police. Though again, I, I could be completely wrong about that, but I, I didn't get any sense of malevolence in Isaac's behavior. I certainly don't think he was trying to punish Olga or she was not really a threat to him by that point. I think, I think the uncle's guilt had been established somehow. And I don't think Olga was going to try to harm Isaac any further. Um, but. I'm not sure that Isaac wanted to be tethered to her anymore. Yeah. And he might've been if he'd taken her off the island. So my guess is that he went to the mainland, told the police. That's how I read it. You don't think he did? I don't know. Cause I still, I was going to ask the question of, is Olga a victim or a villain in this movie? That's a good question. What do you think? I think that Olga's character is too sinister to just be a victim. I mean, she shows no remorse in shooting Isaac randomly with uh, arrows from her crossbow. She, she breaks his fingers when he's trying to escape. Um, she detaches the telephone line for him to get help. Yeah, I don't know. She's convinced that he murdered her father though. And what about the mom? Cause she knows the mom is locked away as well. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I think this is where we run again into this issue of there maybe being one too many characters mm. and you know, it, I mean, another thing that could have occurred is, you know, because the mother's walled up, she's been walled up. Um, it would have been interesting if Isaac was a laborer, so he would have had the skills to wall her up. Mm. Um, and then Olga reaching that wall, which she does at the beginning of the film, she may have realized in that moment that that wall was in the wrong spot. It was too close. Uh, yeah. and that would have been an interesting thing too, but it does feel a little bit like, uh, I mean, it does feel slightly nitpicky. I do, I do think that um, both films could have been stronger with their writing issues addressed. But I think in Caveat's case, it's a it's a fairly oh, it's minor very small. issue. Yeah, and and certainly uh, the film works tremendously well on its own terms. And and to be honest, if we hadn't also seen Smile around the same time and had it as a contrast to 
caveat. I wonder whether we would have dug so deeply into caveats, potential issues. Uh, I suspect yeah. not. I think it would have held five stars for me and I would have been farming it around. Well, I still will anyway. I'll be like, yeah, you got to go watch caveat. Mm. But yeah. Yeah. I, um, in terms of horror movies, it's very high up on the list. I think the other thing that's, I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff actually that's very scary. Yeah. The other yeah. thing would be Isaac himself, Isaac with his scars on his head. You know, he's no fool in that first scene when, or first of his scenes, when he's talking to the uncle, he asks the questions I know I would have asked. And he is skeptical and he is rational, but he also is sleepy eyed and clearly compromised and working at the highest level you could imagine someone in his situation could work at. Uh, and that's another thing. Horror movies have a habit of, uh, their conceit seems to be built around how idiotic the main yeah. characters are and the mistakes that they would make. I don't think that, um, caveat ever does that, uh, mm. to be, to be fair, except for the fact that you would expect Rose to have a better understanding of delusion and hallucination than she seems to have. I don't disagree with her choices either. Uh, just the underlying, uh, sense of herself that she has. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I would probably, I would agree. I'd give caveat 4.5. That's, that's a good score. That's a good score. I can't wait to see what, uh, Damon McCarthy comes up with next. Yeah. Um, do you know who's got anything in the woodworks? Uh, yeah, yeah, he does. He does. Um, I don't think there's any particular intention to do a caveat too, which I'm really happy about because I think that film yeah. stands on its own. Um, but I understand he has got another project he's working on with the script he's excited about obviously making caveat it was his first film i believe yeah debut and it was very di difficult film to get up and running i doubt he'll have the same issues with the second one so yeah we'll hopefully see it relatively soon which would be uh, a great thing and you know if he uh if he wants anyone to take a a quick run at his script you know we're here we'd love it <laughs> Yeah, he, he can he can find our information in the show notes. <laughs> so. Yeah, because we will be uh, connecting with him on the show notes, so anyone else can as well. And yeah, I think that is um, I think that's it for today. All right, well that was a lot of fun. I don't know how many of these we'll do, but I really enjoyed that. Me too. Yeah, um, we'd so love to hear your opinions on Smile or Caveat if you guys, if the audience has time to watch and talk about that. Yeah, and also if there's any, uh, we'll just stick with horror for now. If there are any horror films you've watched lately or ever, and you always thought, my goodness, if only they'd address this issue, uh, share that too. I think that's really interesting stuff. Um, yeah, it is. You know, it's easy to sit here behind the mic and pass judgment and so we will um and, and next time i think uh we will get on and do the uh street sketches indeed all right and then yeah people can pass judgment on us so that's fair mm, i agree yeah. okay well over and out and everyone have a fantastic weekend have a good one